from ed.net, hello and welcome along to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. ED editor Luke Nichols here, coming at you from our offices in West Sussex on Friday the 18th of November. And after a few weeks um, out on the road, uh, the editorial team are back together here in the studio today to bring you some exclusive interviews and round up some of the biggest stories from across the green economy. So, coming up on today's show, we speak with the Carbon Trust's Chief Executive Tom DeLay live from the COP22 climate change conference in Marrakesh and Tom tells us exactly what it's like out there on the ground. It is literally like Freshers Week. You've got thousands of people running around trying to make friends, you've got people trying to catch your interest. The mood is workmanlike at the moment and uh, yeah, it's positive. And then Ida Greenbury, the Managing Director of Sustainability at Asia Pulp and Paper, reports back from the talks where she was talking about a host of deforestation issues, but Ida admits there's been one thing that's dampened spirits somewhat among the delegates. It was very, very, very positive in the first couple of days until the morning when um, they announced that Donald Trump won mm. the, the president and then everything became a little bit sad. But um, it's definitely a progress from mm. COP21. So yes, welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast for this, our 15th episode of the show, uh, and we are reunited. Uh, I'm joined here by ED's senior reporter Matt and reporter George. How are you both? Yeah, better. I feel like I've been, uh, my body's just been like a cesspool of, of injuries and, <laughs> and illnesses, so it's nice to be not dying under a duvet somewhere. You want to explain injuries? You've hurt, hurt your knee? Yeah, I've got um, something called a baker's cyst, so I'll let, I'll let, the, I'll let the listeners uh, delve into that if they wish. But Okay, and George, you, you feeling all right? Hey? Yeah, good. I mean, I think since last time all three of us are here, uh, I think uh, the world's somewhat turned on its head, but mm. hopefully we can instill some normality back into proceedings. Yeah, anyone want to guess how long that's been since we were last in this, in this room together? Well, I'm going to oh. say six weeks. <laughs> you're, right. you're spot on George yeah. <laughs> six weeks to the day as well it's ridiculous. I have a little calendar every day. so yeah 7th of October was the last time we were here together in the studio uh, that was for episode 12 of the podcast um, and yeah I was going to ask has there been any big news um, I think there has been a couple of big stories uh, be impossible for us to go the whole episode I suppose without mentioning, mentioning um, Donald Trump but we're all about productivity on this show, and that's exactly where, what we're going to bring you today. So um, perhaps a bit of music, I thought, uh, to get us feeling all a bit united. Now, uh, why are we playing this music? Well, uh, because yesterday was a momentous day for England and for Britain's climate change progress. But we have officially ratified the Paris Agreement. So we basically agreed now in writing, because that makes it official, the fact that it's now in writing, um, to a national climate action plan based largely on the country's Climate Change Act, uh, which commits us to an 80% reduction in emissions against 1990 levels by 2050. Um, So I know it's been on the cards for a while, but this is obviously a huge deal. Uh, for the UK green economy and for the Paris Agreement as a whole, especially given that uh, uncertainty thrown up by Trump's presidential victory. And so, uh, for such a momentous occasion for the international climate agenda, who would the UK put forward uh, to actually put pen to paper and ratify the deal? Uh, was it Theresa May? No. Uh, BEI Se- Secretary Greg Clark? No. Climate Minister Nick Hurd? No. It was uh, none other than Boris Johnson, who officially signed the Paris Agreement this afternoon, which I think was a bit of a surprise to all of us, wasn't it? Um, it must be just be in his capacity, I guess, just to have to sign these kind of global um, agreements. But anyway, the UK's ratification of uh, the agreement has, has capped off what seems to have been a really successful COP22 conference out in Marrakesh, uh, which comes to an end today after two weeks of discussions. Um, now, as much as we'd have loved to have sent George out there in his socks and sandals in the Moroccan sun... Uh, we actually didn't attend this year's climate talks. Uh, instead, we reported on them from here um, and relied on the live streams and press releases that were being sent out from the various conferences and events. But Matt, I suppose you've been closest to the talks um, in terms of reporting and writing on them. Yeah, I've been uh, keeping a keen eye. <laughs> 
positive on the whole? It seems like there's been kind of a number of kind of different initiatives that have been announced. And I think I think positive is, is the guess. But I'd, I'd like to point out that if you really use your imagination, there's not much difference between the tropical deserts of Marrakesh and the busy streets of East Grinstead. But um, <laughs> stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I, I I was under the impression going into COP twenty two that it was going to be a bit of a, a celebration. You know, last year was unprecedented. It was historic for a reason. Mm. And I think it was a chance for the delegates to give each other a pat on the back. It was almost like a honeymoon. And then obviously the, uh, the, the Trump news happened and I was half expecting it to pop up on that ITV show, Honeymoons from Hell. Um, other TV shows are available. I'm not sure if that's advertising or not. but We're not that big yet. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think all in all, it's, it's been positive, yeah. It's been, I guess, a thing of um, consolidation. Um, kind of, I guess, if, if COP21 was about kind of building up the momentum I guess it's now about actually sustaining that putting into practice would that be fair yeah it's it's been it's been proactive in the sense that it's moving forward but it's the the main headlines have been very reactive to to the more global news and the the kind of US-based news so it's it's people forging ahead but they've had to kind of sidestep and and introduce these kind of new um calls more than actual frameworks it's just a it's just a call for calm mainly but it's 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 doing the right effect out there any specifics, any kind of particular announcements or things that have happened that you think are worth flagging? Yeah, definitely. There's, um, I think the first one that kind of came came into light was um, the World Alliance for Clean Technologies was founded by the Solar Impulse team. And obviously um, they, they did their kind of flight around the world um, in the solar power plane. Mm. And it was it was an example of, of what clean tech can do, you know, and the limits it can do. But it always felt like a, a bit of a mascot. Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. it's nice to see that they've found in this this you know new alliance which is aims at fostering collaboration and delivering innovation. So this mascot has now become one of the main players in an area that's going to be essential in delivering this kind of transition. Interesting. So um, you know we're not sure what's going to come from it, but I'm sure with such a reputable um, and it, that's saying they wanted to deliver credible innovations, and what's more credible than a, a solar power yeah. solar power flight around the world? So. <laughs> Um, there's also on a kind of more global level the NDC partnership um, which is basically 42 countries have kind of agreed to kind of come together and put this partnership to place which embeds the Paris goals in every kind of decision making process in every industry in these countries Wow! so people like Germany are pledging you know 2.7 billion euros which is going to rise up to 4 billion euros not just for their operations but to help with developing countries Mm. so it's kind of that's the putting into motion that you want to see that sounds particularly important yeah especially given the kind of um the reports we've written about that have almost been overshadowed by um the talks and the agreement itself which kind of indicate that actually the agreement is not necessarily going to be as ambitious as is what's required to get us down to the two degrees that kind of is set out within it so we actually need to now really start embedding the agreement i guess in in sort of central and business strategy and industrial strategy so yeah any initiatives that kind of push towards that sound positive exactly and i mean back to the kind of business aspect the the big one i suppose has been the kind of i mean 360 us-based businesses Mm, have called on have called on the us um trump and the new regime to support the Paris agreement i mean 360 is a huge, huge number. <laughs> it is a lot of, yeah, we were saying this in the office yesterday, weren't we? It's um, yeah, I'd be hard pushed to think of three hundred and sixty businesses and write them down. I well, think. When was the last time you ever had to like count the three hundred and sixty? <laughs> that was probably like one of those guess how many sweets are in the jar thing, and you just have a quick glance over like yeah, it's about three three hundred and sixty in there. It's it's a huge, and these these aren't just SMEs; these no. are huge global brands. You're talking your Unilevers, your Marses, mm. your Nikes. And even that, it's been overseen by some huge global institutions like Sarah's, We Mean Business, the mm. B Team, WWF. Mm. This is all the big kind of players. And it is it is just this huge echo chamber, which is directly aimed at Donald Trump saying, mm. support it. And it's it's gone hand in hand with the fact that, you know, Secretary of State for the US, you know, um, John Kerry, he's out there. He's basically said that the US citizens are on board. The US have actually submitted their their kind of climate plan, how mm. they're going to go, you know, get these eighty percent emissions reductions by twenty fifty. It's all creating this huge buzz of the US is involved, and I think it was needed. I think I, mean, I saw a lot of comparisons when Trump was first announced when it's a kind of Brexit as mm. this thing, but yeah. whereas Brexit is still very much uncertain, no one really knows. I think the government knows what's going on. Um, I think people know that regardless of what Trump does, this is happening regardless. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, I mean, COP22-wise, you also then managed to speak to people out on the ground there? Yeah, exactly. So um, 
I managed to speak to get hold of the Carbon Trust for um, a quick quick ten minutes with their their CEO um, Tom Delay, who has been out on the grounds there. They they've got a, a new report that's that launched yesterday, mm-hmm. um, all about kind of you know ratcheting up energy efficiency plans. So they've been they've been actively speaking to people out there, and you know, Tom was kind of on the ground, you know, eyes in the sky, everything there when <laughs> when he spoke to him and. He had a real kind of sense of what was going on there and, and the mood that you can't necessarily display through news releases and whatnot. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, then, without delay, here's Matt's chat with uh, Carbon Trust Chief Executive Tom Delay in full. So, I'm now joined on the phone um, by the Carbon Trust, uh, Tom Delay. Um, Tom, thank you very much for agreeing to this call. Um, I believe you're, you're sitting on a rooftop in Marrakesh right now, which um, beats the view from a dark and dreary East Grinstead um, office that I'm in right now. Yeah, the view's spectacular. It's a clear blue sky, sunset uh, about 10 minutes ago. So it's, uh, it's spectacular. And... Um, You've been um, you've been out of Marrakesh for a few days now, I believe. Um, I was just wondering if you could kind of paint the scene. What's it kind of like out there? What's the general mood? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Marrakesh is an interesting cop. Um, I haven't been to all of these uh, annual events, but this one uh, I think is special because it's a year after Paris, and a lot of people said, look, Paris put the momentum back into uh, the climate change agenda, and Marrakesh and other cops thereafter will all be about, okay, delivering on a Paris agreement, which is an extraordinary commitment by you know, so many countries. Um, so the, 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 the mood is one of sort of, uh, I think, taking stock of quite how big some of the commitments are, uh, recognizing that in some cases the commitments are inadequate and will need to be ratcheted up. So there's kind of a workmanlike uh, feel to the place. Um, it, like all COPs, is now a huge event. Um, it is literally like Freshers' Week. Um, you've got thousands of people running around trying to make friends. You've got people trying to catch your interest to join whatever uh, venture they've got currently running. Um, so it, it, the mood is workmanlike at the moment, and uh, it's dusty. It's reasonably hot during the day, but it's, uh, yeah, it's positive. So no doubt, um, once you, you leave, you'll be coming home with a, a dose of kind of freshers uh, flu. But un- until then, um, the, what kind of brings you out to Marrakesh? Uh, is there anything you're, you're kind of running, anyone you're hoping to speak to in general? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think Marrakesh is, is strange. It brings together a community who, uh, of course, talk to each other and do things uh, as they go. But, but Marrakesh brings together that community in one place. Uh, it's far enough away, frankly, from anybody's desk to give people a chance to, to talk on and to renew friendships. So I think that's what's special. It gives people you know, a chance to, to take stock. Um, I think it's also uh, you know, a place where the official and the unofficial meet. So uh, pretty much every government is, is here They've all got their negotiators here. There's an ongoing process of international negotiations, but of course that's backed up by civil society, by industry, uh, the business community, the financial services community, observers, NGOs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is, you know, uh, you know to some degree, it's, it's a great opportunity to bring all those people together. And um, it's been a it's been a busy day from from what I've seen so far. They've had the kind of the NDC partnership seems to be the kind of overarching um, news from today. Is there any kind of uh, yeah. thing that you've picked up on, or, or is anything you're you're well, hoping to see introduced? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the Carbon Trust, along with everybody else, is looking to say, well, look, what yeah, what can we do to make the Paris Agreement real to to get progress uh, to happen? I think the uh, the NDC coalition of partnership that was launched today, I was there. Um, was very well taken on board. I think there's a great focus on saying, look, this is an inclusive partnership, which it needs to be. Um, it's not closed. It's for everybody to bring forward what they can to try and move forward to an end result. Um, so I think that maybe that is the news of the day. Um, I think there are a lot of people trying to find ways of working together, and uh, that, that's quite interesting right now. And um, there's been there's been talk that uh, obviously Nick, uh, the UK climate minister, is out there. There's been talk that perhaps um, he'll be actually ratifying on behalf of the UK over the next next few days. Um, now, currently, more than a hundred countries have have ratified with these NDC partnership launches, and the fact that you you won't have a seat at the table unless you're ratified. What kind of message would you have to the countries that are yet to ratify, based on what you've seen so far in Marrakesh? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's an overwhelming movement now towards the Paris Agreement, uh, notwithstanding the few countries that haven't as yet ratified, notwithstanding uh, the U.S. election results. Um, I think there is no overwhelming majority. Um, I think I have to say, um, Minister stood up and gave you know a very positive uh, view on what the UK stance was going to be going forward. You know, I would fully expect the UK to fall into line in that sense. Um, and certainly, there has been no uh, issue around the UK other than look, it's great that they're out, uh, that we're out here and and moving things forward along with everybody else. And um, I suppose um, from the outside looking in, the first the first two days at least of, of Marrakesh felt very much like a almost like a celebration. It was it was you know a congratulatory thing that the the agreement had come into force just just days before. Since then, obviously, we've had um, uh, the Trump president elect, which has kind of uh, dampened spirits and cast a bit of doubt over the kind of climate aspirations. Um, how how has that news kind of been taken over there? There's still a lot of commitments going on, but is there is there an air of doubt there? No. no uh, I think there's much less of an air of doubt than I would have expected. Um, I would have thought there have been some really uh, very downcast views. Um, there, are, of course, there are some people who are downcast, but overwhelmingly, I think the feeling is, look, there's a momentum here. Um, what we need to do to build a sustainable low-carbon future is now well underway. Um, the cost of various technologies is coming down. Grid parity, for instance, on renewables is pretty much there. There is an enormous commitment of finance to this sector, and I think a recognition that this is a good sector to invest in. Um, you know, old energy is getting to be higher risk, seen to be higher risk. New energy is seen to be the future. So, you know, the financial services community here, uh, technologies are all here. I think there's a sense of momentum. This is going to happen. Um, and I think along with the momentum comes a sense of opportunity. Uh, there's a real opportunity to build advantage here to get out there and start you know, proving you can do it at home and then proving you can do it around the world, whatever it may be. Um, and I think that's something that has uh, you know, kept the momentum going, whatever the sort of potential setbacks are. Paris gave this whole thing momentum. I think it's back again. Um, when it comes to uh, the U.S. election, to some degree, people are saying, look, you know, the momentum is here. There is an opportunity here. Uh, do we really believe that fundamentally uh, a new uh, administration is not going to recognize that opportunity? Um, even if it doesn't recognize the opportunity, there's a sense, I think, that it's going to happen anyway around the rest of the world. Um, that in the United States, what isn't maybe agreed at a federal level will in many cases at a state level be carried forward anyway. So I think there's a sense of uh, inevitable um, I think most people would agree that, you know, a, a, a U.S. administration that is not overtly supportive of this as a direction of travel isn't going to help some of the international negotiations. It's going to maybe uh, dampen some of the uh, momentum that's being built up since Paris. But, you know, I think there's a sense of, look, nobody ever said it was going to be easy. And, uh, you know, let's get on with it. And, and uh, if the new administration comes out with whatever position and, and, and uh, series of sort of positions it takes um you know the world will work with it and you mentioned the kind of state players i imagine as as kind of marrakesh begins to set the framework and, and future kind of conferences really kind of delve into the framework these type of um areas kind of the you know the the sub-national governments and and business in general are going to have a, a much bigger part to play and so is there a need for, for marrakesh to really i mean it, it is doing i noticed um like uh, areas like Beijing and stuff have signed on to these kind of two degrees coalitions and stuff. Is there a real need for them yeah, to absolutely. now move on? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, you look at the highest level and what uh, the Paris Agreement uh, secured, uh, that Kyoto never did, was really global agreement um, on the basis of top-down aspiration to a science-based target for two degrees or one and a half degrees aspiration. Um, but then a sense of, look, here are all the... Uh, people lining up behind that with their own plans and their own commitments. So these NDCs that have been put in place um, don't add up to what is needed, but they are nevertheless in place for every country. There's something we can work with. So you then go down from the country level to, well, actually, what would you do if you were trying to put together an NDC? And it's going to come right down to action you can take in different industry sectors, action you can take in different geographies. And you're quite right, cities is a big thing now. Um, so, you know, the further down into the actually getting it done we go, um, I think the uh, the more the business mantle will pick up on this, the more the business opportunity is being sensed. 
Um, and, you know, if we're talking about governments, then we're talking often about state or, as you say, city-level governments. And essentially, we've got all these different players all, all shooting for very similar targets, but there's, a, there's a, an array and a variety of ways to get there. How, how does this become um, something that's more streamlined and not just a mismatch of pledges and policies? Well, I think I think what's interesting here, I mean, corporates, uh, you know, the Carbon Trust works with a number of corporates who have signed up to the uh, science-based target initiative. And that's really quite exciting because it basically says, look, we want to ensure that everything we do is consistent with an outcome that is defined by science. So you take that long-term view, you say, we want to be on the pathway to a science-based outcome of two degrees at most. Um, Exactly the same uh, is a way of bringing together different countries with different uh, ways of getting to a, a low-carbon future. Um, I think there's a big recognition that you know what suits one country, one industry, one sector, one city is not necessarily going to be replicable everywhere. People are going to have to find their own lowest-cost solution to pragmatically get to an end result. And I think the, uh, that's where the top-down and the bottom-up that uh, Paris sort of enshrined is so powerful. So, you know, the bottom-up doesn't need to be the same. There will inevitably be an element of, you know, what are you doing, how are you doing it, can I learn from that? Uh, in some cases, it will be, well, you go down that route, but I'm not going to follow you, I'm going to do it a different way. But I think the, uh, the mechanisms put in place to ratchet up aspiration over time uh, will allow that to happen. So, yeah, I think there is now a sense of uh, this isn't one big game. Uh, it's one big result with lots and lots and lots of compart- you know, ways of getting to that result. And um, Tom, I'm worried that um, you, you probably have better things to do than, than sit on a, a roof in Marrakesh and talk to me. Um, although, uh, rather depressingly, this has probably been one of the better things I've been able to do today, such as the, the life of a journalist nowadays. But um, so my last question, I suppose, would be, you know, Marrakesh had big shoes to follow on from in Paris with that global agreement signed. What would, what would, you know, make a successful COP22 for you? I, I, I don't think anybody um, feels that after Paris, the as it were, international negotiation aspects of this were going to be the big step forward. Um, I've heard consistently from various delegations that, look, this is, uh, in that sense, going to be a modest um, COP. It's going to be a consolidation. It's going to be a let's actually try and work out the guidelines of how we make this agreement work. So I think the, from the international negotiation perspective, you wouldn't look for this to be a big, uh, a big COP. I think mean, you would look at it to be uh, a cop more anchored in reality than ever before. And so that will be success. People coming away um, emboldened and excited by the prospect, but uh, you know, daunted to some degree by the challenge and the scale of the challenge. And I think that's starting to come you know, to fall into place. I wouldn't say people are here living with a hangover saying, oh, my God, what have we signed up to? I think people here are starting to think, though, no, this isn't going to be easy. We're going to have to get down here and actually do some serious work. Okay, Tom. Um, again, uh, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been a it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Okay, look, it's an absolute pleasure. Well, there you go then. Um, very interesting chat with uh, Tom Delay. Uh, apologies for some of the sound issues in that recording. There, uh, I think it's probably two things. One, we probably need to invest a little bit more in our audio equipment, and two, we're, we're calling out in Marrakesh. So anyway, let's uh, get straight on with our next chat then. Um, so on Monday of this week, uh, I was a pretty busy guy. I was I had three interviews uh, back to back in London. Um, it was just one of those days as well where it was just pouring down with rain all day and missed my first train. Second train was then cancelled. Had to then drive drive to Gatwick and leave my car at Gatwick and get the train up from Gatwick. It was mayhem in the morning, but actually it all came out well in the end. I had three interviews. Um, and then I had a lecture in the evening, actually, that I went and sat in on and reported on. Um, so it was a very busy day. But um, in the middle of all that, uh, one of the interviews I spoke to uh, Ida Greenbury, who's the Managing Director of Sustainability at Asia Pulp and Paper, based out in Indonesia. Um, now, this is a company that has completely revolutionised its approach to managing deforestation in recent years. Um, and the ED regulars among you may remember that we actually paid a visit out to Indonesia to chart APP's progress on its journey to zero deforestation. Um, I made use of my editor's privileges back then, and uh, went on that trip uh, and produced a short video, which I'll include a link to uh, within the article alongside this podcast. Um, and last week, Ida was out in Marrakesh at COP22 discussing a range of 
key issues um, from carbon pricing to conservation funding and different approaches to managing the carbon costs of deforestation. Um, Ida then had a pit stop back in London before heading back to her offices in Jakarta. So I managed to arrange a quick catch up with her. And in this chat, we discussed some of the key points she had to make at uh, COP22. And um, Ida also provides some really interesting updates on APP's zero deforestation progress. So here's my chat with Asia Polfin Papers, Ida Greenbury, in full. So uh, here I am then um, in central London, sat in the offices of the Global Council, uh, which works with businesses on the risks and opportunities of key political issues. Um, but I'm actually not here for an interview with the Global Council. Instead, I'm, I'm joined by Ida Greenbury, uh, the Director of Sustainability at Asia Pulp and Paper, which is one of the largest pulp and paper groups um, in, in the world. Ida, hello. How are you? Hey, hello. So, um, last time we spoke, we were, I think we were literally on the other side of the world, actually, out in, um, in Indonesia. Indonesia, yeah, um, because APP kindly invited us out to go and experience how APP has progressed with its um, sort of zero deforestation commitments. Um, but that was last August, I think now. So um, quite a lot has happened since, both for APP and sort of globally as well in the world of sustainable business. Um, so it's a good time to be catching up with you and actually uh, a perfect time to be catching up with you because I hear that you're fresh um, from Marrakesh, um, fresh, come over from uh, COP22. Um, so you were involved in the, in the talks there, is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm part of the Indonesian delegation. Uh, we uh, presented our progress in the Indonesian pavilion in the blue zone of, uh, of uh, COP22 Marrakesh. Uh, the audience, basically um, NGOs, uh, government policymakers and everything else. We discussed several issues uh, with um, uh, my participation. One is uh, the um, APP or Asia Pulp and Paper participation in the discussion is just about um, how do we involve community, how do we embrace community into the heart of our operation. As you probably know, at uh, COP21 in Paris, we launched our integrated forestry and farming system, so we reported the progress that we have done so far. Um, basically, integrated forestry and farming system is similar to agroforestry. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm a forester, so I studied forest agroforestry since 20 years ago. Um, uh, but the difference between integrated forestry and farming system that we just launched and agroforestry is basically, in the past, agroforestry's um, um, objective is basically to plant intercropping between trees and cash crops uh, uh, to uh, increase the income of the farmers. That's basically it, right? And then now the the integrated forestry and farming system that we are trying to develop together with the community is basically a new community and landscape-based business model. It's very similar to agroforestry. It's it's a mixed mixed crops between trees and and, and cash crops and uh, farming, um, uh, 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 fisheries and stuff like that. But by incorporating the ecological values in the landscape. So some people call it agroecology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically, um, I'll give you an example. If we uh, develop this kind of a program in uh, a village on peatland, so we have to develop this agroecology uh, program while protecting the peatland, for example. So okay. the objective is not only to increase the income of the community, but also to protect the environment. So that's the first discussion uh, that APP presented. Second discussion was about a high carbon stock presented uh, by me as co-chair of high carbon stock approach steering mm-hmm. group. And uh, I presented uh, how innovation in the landscape approach in order to protect forests is needed. And one of these innovations that I presented is the high carbon stock approach. Uh, it highlights the importance of uh, good, uh, the need of uh, good definition of natural forest. Uh, um, what is the definition of natural forest? What kind of natural forest needs to be protected? What kind of uh, forest can be developed into plantation? 
how the process is going to look like and um, how to involve the community, free and prior informed consent in the protection of natural forests. All of those were, were discussed as the innovative approach to forest protection. And also brought the, the good news that um, uh, my, my other co-chair, Grant Rosamond, announced in Malaysia, which is uh, finally we finished the convergence process between high carbon stock approach and high carbon stock plus that was basically promoted by the palm oil industry now becomes one. So the convergent process is finalized. Now we only have one methodology for high carbon stock uh, and and uh, basically one definition of natural forest, which is for humid tropics, mm. which is quite a big achievement for a high carbon stock um, yeah. approach. Yeah, so you've, you've, you've been very busy then. For the yes, 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 yes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, just broadening that out then for a second, I mean, COP22, sort of on the whole, from your perspective, being there on the ground, very positive? Did, did it feel, as a sort of sustainability professional, did it feel like the discussions were, were sort of positive and have moved on very well from where we were at with COP21? It has been, uh, I was there for a week, it was very, very, very positive in the first couple of days until the morning when um, when they announced that Donald Trump won mm. the, the president. Mm. So then everything became a little bit sad. But um, it's definitely uh, a progress from mm. COP21. COP21 is about people making pledges, is about, you know, um, uh, pledges of uh, who's going to commit to Paris Agreement and everything. It's all about pledges in COP21. Right now we're talking about implementation. Right now we're talking about uh, finance. Who's going to pay for that? How are we going to walk the talk? And who's going to pay for that? So this is what we did. We've been discussing in Marrakesh mostly. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I thought we I was wondering if we could get through the interview without mentioning Donald Trump. But I don't think we were. Well, you asked about the, <laughs> how it's like in Marrakesh. It was very lively and positive, colorful until the news uh, yeah. break. Yeah. So. So. Um, a couple of other things that you've also, you've mentioned, kind of the sort of some of the big discussion points that you've been involved with at COP twenty two, and um, actually there's a few other kind of key issues that I know you've been quite vocal about. I know you kind of um, believe in uh, quite strongly, and one of them was um, that of kind of carbon pricing. So um, Article six of the Paris Agreement, um, which relates to carbon pricing, where essentially those that emit um, carbon dioxide are effectively charged for it. Um, in your view, is sort of establishing carbon markets and setting up a, a carbon price crucial? I think setting up carbon price, it really needs to depend on the market. Okay. And right now in saving forest, the, the, the system that we are using is Red Plus. Now, do I think that Red Plus in setting up carbon pricing will succeed? My argument at this time is that Red Plus will not succeed by itself. Red Plus needs to be combined by other programs to support and complement Red Plus, uh, because Red Plus is basically a uh, payment for it, Plus is basically um, payment after a, a, a delivery of, 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 the, of the result of the project. But we, I, I strongly believe, and I know I've been implementing it for two years, that in order to save for us, we need to invest in advance, uh, especially if we if we invested uh, in advance for the community, for example, community will need to see certain program is can be implemented and succeed. So that means investment. Um, uh, so talking about investment, this is where I um, I build uh, um, thinking about the gaps that is being presented until now. A lot of people talk about pledges, a lot of people talk about implementation, When, but when people talk about who's going to pay for that, um, um, investors do not see investment in, in, in forests to be something that is um, um, viable. Mm. And, and they don't see the value in saving forests because I think we have not put value proper values in the forest itself you know like maybe some kind of monetary values in the forest the value in 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 the carbon the values in the biodiversity is it has not been measured properly i think this is the missing link why investors are not really keen in investing in the forest or in the landscape Mm. so um um, i'm I'm thinking that uh, with app we're going to embark on the natural capital calculation soon uh, basically to put these values and on the on the things that we've been say, trying to save, you know, the forest, 
the, the peatland, the, the, the biodiversity, what kind of value, what kind of monetary values that uh, we can uh, we can attach, attach to each of these uh, elements. And then from there, uh, uh, return of investment can be cal calculated accordingly to then uh, just to uh, um, um, bring more confidence by investors to invest in the landscape. Mm. So you think that's the, do you think that's the right approach then, sort of applying a kind of natural capital model to sort of sustainability, sustainable business? Because I guess um, there's, a, there's a potential view about applying sort of financial models to sort of sustainability and kind of when inherently sometimes it's the financial side of things that might have caused certain issues. But is it if you do it in the right way, is there kind of a way that natural, natural, natural capital can, can work and sort of actually sort of play the right game for the right people? Yeah, I think, of course, uh, nothing is perfect, mm. but we have seen how many years since uh, uh, carbon, um, uh, forest carbon or red plus has been introduced. Yeah. Does, it, does the market actually does it actually work? Has it been working properly? No. Ten years, nothing has been working properly. Mm. So something is not right. So uh, I know that uh, putting uh, monetary values or natural capital might be not might not be the best way moving forward, but at least it will cover some of the gaps. Mm. At least now we know the value of what we're trying to save here. In, for me, I'm I'm from the business uh, uh, community. Yeah. Uh, for for every sustainable sustainability investment that I make, at the end of the day, is about the bottom line. Saving forest is good for for my investment, for our company's investment. Again, it goes back to the bottom line. Mm. So we we need to start talking about forest protection. Um, um, from business perspective, you know that protecting forest is good for business. Mm. Protecting forest means something to the bottom line. Protecting forest is no longer purely dominated by emotional argument. Mm. It is about business argument as well. Mm. And uh, and I think uh, if we argue presented like this, a lot of people from business business community will understand more. From financial institution will have more confidence to invest as mm. well. Mm. And in terms of getting that kind of business engagement in um, sort of sustainability, sustainable business. Um, the kind of COP21 and COP22 talks, the Paris Agreement, the SDGs, all these global frameworks have launched um, sort of within the within the last time actually I saw you back at sort of last year. Mm. Um, how important are those sort of global regulatory frameworks and, and sort of drivers in driving sustainable business? It's very important and for me especially for what we do in Asia Pulp and Paper it's very very important especially um, uh, SDGs have been ratified by the government and um, NDC also you know has been adopted by governments so um, it's, it's very important to have a set target to achieve NDC um, uh, greenhouse gas emission reduction that we're trying to achieve from land use change for example or from forest what is it? So how can we, the stakeholders in the landscape, can collaborate to achieve that target? I think it's very, very, uh, very important to um, to work towards something, a clear target on what kind of reduction that we need to achieve. Mm. And um, I realise we're now sort of 15 minutes into our chat and we haven't actually discussed Asia Pulp and Paper's sort of progress and, and how you've been doing um, over the past sort of year or so. Um, so obviously Asia Pulp and Paper obviously set that very kind of bold, ambitious target, um, positive target of zero deforestation back in 2013, um, and that was essentially a pledge to end the clearance of rainforests um, throughout your supply chain mm -hmm. in Indonesia. Um, three, almost four years on now. Yeah. Um, how are things going? Are you, are you pleased with the progress? Uh, we are pleased with the progress, but the more we go deeper into this, the more we realize that there are more complicated problems that we need to resolve. For example, when we announced uh, our zero deforestation policy, we thought that you know deforestation can be stopped while you know while we stopping all the chainsaw and, and the uh, bulldozer and everything else. But it's actually a lot more complicated than that. Mm. So we, we know that encroachment is still happening by by uh, by third parties. So how can we stop that? How can we help the community to 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 stop deforestation? You know. So that's why we came up with the integrated forestry and farming system and then uh, um, 
and then uh, like for example peatland is not as simple as saving peatland or rehabilitating peatland is oh we have to come up with alternative species that can stand uh, reverted area while supporting the industry and the community at the same time so the more we go deeper it's just getting more complicated but we are pleased that we are um, one of the few actors who, who, who helped driving this agenda forward. Mm. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think it is one of those things that you, once you experience it, you realise how complex it is. So as a journalist kind of writing about these things, it really genuinely wasn't until you actually invited me out there and I myself saw just, I, th- I think the moment for me that I realised how complex that landscape is was actually when we flew over it in the helicopter. Oh, um, yeah. So we went over in the helicopter and you know, they go quite fast helicopters. You can go over a city in a, in a few minutes, and we were up there for sort of twenty <laughs> minutes, and it was like we were on another planet. The That's amount, right. just the, right. just the sheer amount of trees and the complete yeah. size of that landscape. That then I realised it's kind of that a big chunk of it was your concessions. You suddenly realise the sort of sizes we're talking about um, yeah. in terms of hectares. So it is a highly complex landscape, and and it can be as small as kind of a family kind of encroaching that can lead to lead to sort of major problems, major yeah. deforestation problems. Um, mm. One thing, of course, though, that happened since my visit there was the the, the forest fires, which mm. kind of, I think, they, they picked up and, and um, really raged on worse mm. since sort of 1997, I think, mm. in that region. Um, something like 260,000 hectares um, of forest and peatland um, were sort of burnt. F- for you, I mean, those fires, have they, it's hard to, bring any sort of positive light from any of it but what did it sort of serve to highlight to you about the state of affairs there I mean what are the problems that kind of exist that need to really be tackled there by business the 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 fire in 2015 I mean that was a global phenomenon but for us in in Sumatra and Indonesia that that was major major setback you know because we're trying to save the forest we're trying to implement best practice and then El Nino came while we're in the middle of the uh, implementation of this best practice unexpectedly and uh, I mean the the level of 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 the harshness of of El Nino was unexpected totally Mm. and we were still in the middle of blocking canals and retiring area like whoa this (laughs) major um, uh, 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 hot air coming in and attack South Sumatra and central Kalimantan uh, within three months, a lot of a lot of areas burned down into nothingness. So, we 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 understand that it's a global phenomenon. Forest fire happens everywhere globally in 2015, from North America to Russia to Australia to Indonesia. But we cannot just blame the climate uh, climate change alone. We have to also understand that, obviously, with the climate changing, we cannot implement business as usual anymore. Mm. That become very very clear especially operating in peatland you know we have to basically stop this is uh, um, excessive drainage we cannot just look at our concession but we have to look at the landscape because peat landscape is covering so many different stakeholders uh, of forest protection is covering so many different concessions so we need to have a look at the landscape and uh, we start talking we start thinking about how can we rewet certain certain areas uh, and and without uh, suffering from leakage so so many things came at once just make us realize this is it business as usual cannot continue. The same realization uh, also um, occurred in North America and also in, in, I don't know, so much about Russia, but in, in, in Australia, isn't it? People in North America, they're thinking, you know, like, this is not, this is a climate change issue. Mm-hmm. Forest fire is a, is a global climate change issue, but there's also something wrong with the forest management. We mm-hmm. cannot continue managing our forests like that. The same uh, voice came from North America. The same thing coming from the tropics. So we all globally need to change from business as usual. And are you optimistic that we are going to change that business as well? Well, I know with my own eyes that I am and we are changing business as usual in Indonesia mm. um, uh, with, uh, with you know, stopping deforestation, with uh, landscape management, with uh, rewetting uh, peatland, blocking canals, with retiring existing plantation. That's a major breakthrough. Mm. And this high carbon stock approach, you obviously mentioned it earlier on, you're involved in discussions in it. Um, for listeners that aren't too aware of this and where we're at with this kind of the discussions related to kind of high carbon stock approaches, um, could you just kind of fill us in as to sort of where that situation lies at the moment and, and kind of 
what happened at COP22, how, how far things have progressed and whether or not you think this is actually a sort of a viable future approach in this area? A lot, a lot of people don't realize how important high carbon stock is. Uh, first, there's no global definition of natural forest. Mm -hmm. You know, the FAO have one definition, uh, national re regulation have another definition. So, so many uh, people uh, define natural forest differently. Mm -hmm. And uh, how we need, to, that is not good enough. I mean, I mean like when we're talking about uh, carbon, above ground carbon values, when we talk about biodiversity, we need to speak the same with the same language. We cannot speak with different languages and so many different definitions of forest. We need to have one. So um, uh, that is why uh, Greenpeace, the Forest Trust and uh, us, uh, the private sectors, have been working since 2011, 2012 to come up with one definition. And uh, for practitioners like me, uh, a company like us, it's very important because we need to have a, a, a additional guideline in the field of what kind of natural for, natural forest need to be protected and what kind of area needs to be uh, can be developed into plantation uh, what kind of process need to be done in order to protect this natural forest so, so that's that's the very first thing uh, how important it is to have a clear definition of natural forest that needs to be protected mm. and secondly you talked before about Paris agreement and NDC you talked before about uh, that we are we need to meet certain target. How can we meet target if we don't know what we're calculating? What carbon are we calculating to measure, you know, and to, to, to achieve certain greenhouse gas emission reduction? If we have a clear carbon calculation from the specific defined natural forest, it's a lot easier for us to to, to calculate that and, and, and uh, calculate how much we can contribute in a greenhouse gas emission reduction. I'll give you an example. Um, that in, in APP, in Asia Parliament paper, we already finalized the HCV and high carbon stock uh, assessment, right? Mm -hmm. So right now we have a, a clear map where the high carbon stock is located. Because of that clear map, satellite image plus the LIDAR, LIDAR mapping that the LIDAR uh, image that we have created. Uh, all those uh, images that we already have, we already know and how big our high carbon stock areas uh, uh, in our supply chains are. And from there, it's a lot easier for us to calculate how much carbon that we can actually help sequester uh, above the ground mm -hmm. and how much reduction that we can con con contribute to um, to to, to achieve NDC and also from LIDAR we also cre created uh, the elevation model of the peat so we kind of figure out can can also calculate um, uh, how much carbon we help conserve by conserving this peatland to contribute on the NDC as well from the from the above ground carbon itself uh, Asia power and paper contribute to two percent of greenhouse gas emission reduction in 2015 that's meeting our target and in, two, the, in 2020 that 2% will double to 4% mm -hmm. that's you know 100% increase of a greenhouse gas emission target um, to meet NDC mm. Perfect, well um, I mean the last question I was going to ask you is I mean obviously for working with a company that's become so ambitious in terms of its kind of sustainability and what it's now looking to drive, you've taken that kind of the landscape approach um, what's what's next on the agenda for you? How are you what's kind of the, the big focus for the coming couple of years? Mm, my my agenda is landscape approach is basically I need to secure support for this landscape approach support from the stakeholders in the landscape but also financial support as well mm -hmm. um, um, how to unlock funding to help the, the community, the forest on the ground in the landscape and I think uh, we need to um, leverage the role of private sectors to provide um, to provide uh, de-risking and um, seed funding to um, secure additional co-funder to enter and invest in the landscape. So my focus will be on that because we can talk whatever we want about saving forests. If there's no money to save the forest, it's not going to go anywhere. So I'm going to focus a lot on the financing, on climate financing. That's the next one. And uh, not just climate financing, but to make sure that the program will be sustainable in the long run. Um, other than that, recognition, uh, this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, um, approach or initiative, landscape approach, zero deforestation, need to be recognized 
and uh, by by governments, uh, uh, NGOs, and also um, uh, other other organizations like the UN and everything else. If we have a good um, uh, recognition about zero deforestation, about natural forest protection by UN bodies, for example, a lot more people would be able to learn from it and refer to that when they want to protect uh, forests in the future. Mm. Wow. Well, uh, good luck with that ambition. Um, it's great to see you and APP becoming so proactive on this now and kind of taking it into the sort of global stage. Um, and no doubt we'll, we'll catch up again soon for another update on, on how things are progressing. So thanks very much, Ida. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it then. Thank you very much to Ida for that. And so we are almost at the end of this week's podcast, but we have one last thing for you. And that thing is uh, Mr. George Ogilby there, sat in the corner, as usual. How are you doing there, George? Very good, thanks, Luke. Been sitting patiently for the entire show, um, eager, I'm sure, to bring us the sustainability success story of mm. the week. Now, is this week's success story tied into COP22? It certainly is. Good. What you got? So uh, we had the news of UK ratification, and uh, it's already been discussed. So <laughs> which is already, it's already, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Uh, other than uh, Boris uh, signing the <laughs> agreement, um, looking as bewildered as he was, I thought that was a nice little touch. Um, I, I, did, I did think it's good that the, it was it passed seamlessly through uh, Parliament because uh, we know there are high-profile climate deniers within the UK. Mm. Um, so it was nice to see that everyone. It, within the politics side is getting on board mm. which you turn that on its head and it does pr- provide like a clear signal to business that renewables and clean investment is where the money is at right now so um it's yeah i, th- I think once you've got that businesses are starting to realize that they need to invest in uh, clean te- technologies and you've had as uh, matt suggested earlier that we've had uh, 300 companies uh, banging at the door of donald trump saying come on, step up. And uh, we've also had 200 companies, I think it's more than 200 companies now, sign up to the science-based climate targets. Mm. So it's it's showing that businesses are uh, stepping up to the plate alongside politicians. Which yeah, and in some instances kind of leading the, mm. the sort of the charge. And I guess that links in actually to the, the interview that we ran last week with Carlsberg, or Carl in Carlsberg. Carlsberg, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, you spoke to them and he was talking about how businesses are leading on kind of key sector economy issues, didn't you? It sort yeah, of and, um, I think I think businesses as well. That's the impression I got from from um, Simon from Carlsberg was that they don't necessarily need the regulation. I mean, mm. it's it's an enabling thing for huge things like renewables and stuff. But for these new business models, the, the business models, they can mm. they can be driven about regulation, yeah. um, and they're they're not going to wait around either. They're not going to wait for this regulation to come in and incentivize the market. They're mm. going to go out there create the case for it and it will be picked up globally as a result Hmm. yeah no it's interesting and on the kind of the Paris Agreement it's going to be interesting I guess politically at least to see what happens now and obviously we've got the George you'll be reporting on the autumn statement Mm -hmm. next week Mm -hmm. Um, it's quite a late time of the year for the autumn statement I think but um, yeah so they've got that next week so it'll be interesting to see how they're going to kind of back up that level of ambition with sort of the policy, green policy that is required mm. underneath that because obviously coming off the back of 2015 and the past sort of 18 months of green policy changes and what they have done to green policy landscape and what they've done to um, investors and things and kind of rocked a lot of confidence in that sense. It'll be interesting to see how they're going to kind of really back up what they've what they've done here with the Paris Agreement. It'll be the first real kind of a semi-indication of, of what Brexit means as well, I think, the way that the kind of budget is set and the way we respond to it, especially in regards to investment, will be our first real indication of how that goes. Mm. Yeah. Well, stay tuned for that then. That's on uh, Wednesday. We'll be covering that live and reporting on it throughout the day. So, um, there you have it then. Uh, that brings us to an end of this week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered. Uh, we will be back next week with more roundups and interviews and actually a few new podcast features which I'm going to keep a secret for now, but uh, stay tuned for those. Um, Now, this podcast is available on iTunes. Just search for Sustainable Business Covered, and you can listen to them all directly on the website for free. But until next time, it's goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye from George. Goodbye. And goodbye from myself. Goodbye. Goodbye.